listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. That's my uh, my new intro. I want to thank my dear friend and past guest, Rich Redman, great drummer. Uh, was just on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine, and a wonderful guy. And he, I was talking to him, and I said I need an intro, and he goes, "Well, let me do it." So he did it, and he loves doing the voiceover stuff. He wants to get into acting, and he always got a ton of stuff going on. So thank you, Rich Redman, and please check him out at richredman.com. He does, as I said, drummers do crazy stuff. My guest today is in a band. I'm sure he can tell some stories about drummers. My guest is Joey Allen. How you doing, Joey? Hey, what's happening, Steve? Good. Now, now you sound clear. See, people, we had we had a problem. We couldn't get good uh, good sounds in the beginning. I can hear clearly now. The rain has come, and it's raining in LA right now. So you're a buddy with Rich Redman from Jason Aldean, huh? Yeah, you know, I met Rich. It's weird. I met. Rich through Lucky Lehrer of the Circle Jerks, and, and Lucky had a Lucky was on my show when I lived in L.A. and he had a party out at his. He has a beautiful house in the hills, and I'm like Lucky because I'm always out looking for guests. I go, well, Lucky, who's good? And he pointed out the Rich. Well, this is a few years ago. I honestly didn't really know who Jason Aldean was. My fiance right. had heard of him, and Lucky's like, you got to talk to him. And then Rich, you know, we talked. I had a cancellation in the studio. He came on the show, and we just became great friends, and we've been close friends since. Nice, nice. Great drummer. Now, you're a great guitarist. i got to ask you, when did you start playing guitar? What made you get into this wonderful business of rock and roll? Um, stupidity, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. I, hey, can I cuss on here if I need to? Or you what? can curse. You can say whatever. You can even... All right, because it's Monday, and I might need to drop a few F-bombs. That's fine. Um, I got I got into guitar right around 13 years of age. Um, I started it at school back when they used to have music, you know, um, instruction in school, and it was like, it was the acoustic cat cat gut strings like maybe around i don't know fourth or fifth grade um and, and i started playing you know stuff like feeling groovy and all these kind of uh i don't even know what you want to call them just folk songs you know trying to learn how to pick the guitar and then turn it into rock and roll i have two older sisters and 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 one of them had a, a live two or not a live two a live one from kiss or kiss alive i guess it's not a live two or one whatever the first one, right, and and that got me into the rock and roll world. That was that was all it took. It's amazing, you know. I've talked to a lot of people that a lot of them Kiss has influenced a lot of people. You know, a lot for people like I'm I'm 55, and I think people who are like 48 or 45 and up who are musicians, Kiss really had an influence. I don't know if it was the makeup or it was just the look or the sound. What attracted you to Kiss? Was it the sound or was it the whole persona? It was more of the sound in the beginning. I mean, I, you know, I'd probably be a more accomplished guitarist if I would have gotten into, like, uh, you know, Alan Holdsworth off the bat or something like that. But when you're young and you're just wanting to rock and roll, it, keeping it simple is key. And, and that's, I think, what what KISS does even to this day. They don't try to over-engineer rock and roll, and they just get up and do what they do, and, and they still do it well. So... You know, kind of a little bit of all of it. Now you're you're getting into rock and roll, and you're living in the L.A. area. I believe you lived in Irvine. So yes, you, sir. You're, I mean, and people, if you don't know, Irvine might be 40 miles from L.A., but it's about two and a half hours. Just so people don't... <laughs> no, at least three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when do you sit there and start saying, okay, man, I really dig playing. I want to start a band. Probably about 14 or 15, not, not much longer. You know, there's, there's always kids that, that you're, you're around in school that have like interests. And, and there was a few guys in my neighborhood that just were into it. And um, one of them's uh, uncle or cousin was the first drummer on Saturday Night Live, so he kind of had a lineage. And then this other kid I knew who now owns a software company in Austin, guy named Jeff Perlman um, had a drum set. So just by kind of by, uh, you know, necessity breeds, what is it, necessity breeds invention or the mother invention, whatever, whatever that saying is, we found a drummer that had a kit. There was another guy with some gear and you just start jamming, you know. 
Now, what kind of music? What kind of music were you playing back then? I mean, when you when you were let's say together, were you playing Kiss? Were you playing rock? What what were you playing? Yeah, Kiss, Cheap Trick, Bad Company. Um, you know, when Van Halen came out, because it came out a year year or two after that, Van Halen. Um, just you know, anything we could get our our hands on, and somebody would learn it. One of us guitar players would learn it and show the other guy, and you know, Queen. Um, was big at the time as well with the game, tie your mother down. So just, uh, you know, you and I are close to the same age. So just a lot of probably a lot of the same stuff you grew up on. Now you're playing. You're in a band, and I know I read somewhere. I don't know if it's true because it's on Wikipedia, and they don't they don't always say it's true. But they said you were in 20 bands before you joined Warrant. Something like that. It it might be a little exaggerated, but at least 15. How's that? Now. What was that like? Did the bands did you start them and they just didn't work out, or did you start and you quit, or did people flake? Because you, you know, how did how did you get in so many different bands? You just you just go kind of go around, and when you're playing in a band, if there's a band that comes around that was better, I would just I would just go. If there was a band that had a bigger draw and I liked it better, I would just go. You know, there were when Eric and I met. Uh, I was in a band called Nightmare 2, and then shortly after, I joined a band called Suspect, and then it was a band called Targa, and then, you know, I mean, you just go on and on and on um, until something sticks, you know? It's not that, I, that I'm that i a quitter or anything like that. You just move around when you're young and follow what, what you dig, I guess. What made you feel that when you met Eric that something would stick with this band? Warrant was, was Warrant already up and running? <clears throat> no, he met me... Um, down in Orange County and I was in this band Nightmare 2 and he wanted to jam with me so one of our buddies this guy named Daryl that, that dressed like Hendrix um, black guy that we knew that was a cool kid um, told me hey I got this skinny kid that, that digs your band and wants to jam with you and it was Turner and Turner and I jammed for a while I don't even know how long and then I left that that situation for this band Suspect and that's when he moved to LA and started Warrant and then about a year and a half, two years later, I ran into him when I moved up to Hollywood, and that's when I got in the band. Now, when he had established Warren in that year and a half, you know, before you moved up to L.A., were they working clubs already, or were they just in the early stages? Yeah, they had been working clubs since the get-go, playing and opening for bands like Poison and GNR, and and just playing different different venues all over LA and they 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 were really aggressive promoting their band so they had a really good draw at the time when I when I stepped in I mean it was probably the time I stepped in it was probably the number one drawing band in, in LA without it without a deal what was the scene like I mean I always say you know you hear about the sunset a sunset strip back there I wasn't living out there then what was was it as crazy as people said just that it was always packed and there was just flyers everywhere and people in just the crazy metal clothes what was it like as someone who was from someone who was involved in it and more than involved in it someone who was in a band involved in it yeah it it, it was it was packed on the strip every friday and saturday night for sure um the weekdays were a little less you know a little a little more subdued so to speak um but it was packed where you couldn't from from you, you lived in L.A. from the Whiskey all the way up to the Rainbow and then beyond, which was Gazzari's, which I don't even know what Gazzari's is called now. Um, used to be the Key Club, and it's changed so many times. But it was packed where, you you know, it was tough to walk up the hill. Um, and there were there was just numerous bands flyering for whatever gig, and, you know, and you would just hand people flyers as they walked by, and we all would be partying and drinking and so yeah, it was it was probably what people think it was or what they what they can envision. It was it was a lot of fun. It was uh it was innocent, so to speak. And uh and we made the best of it, man, for sure. Now you said you when you joined Warrant they were one of the, one of the top draws that was it wasn't signed. How did the right. signing come about? Were you part of the band when they first got signed or did you join when they were already signed? Yeah, I was in the band. I joined the band in March of 87. Um, which would have meant I was about 22. And at that time, we were looking for a deal hard. We were managed by a company called Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli, who had brought Prince to the world, and the woman that she was real tight with Prince. So he gave us some money for a demo. 
uh, and ended up not liking the band live. So he passed on to us at the time. He had his Paisley Park imprint on Warner Brothers. Um, and we took that tape and started shopping it around L.A. Uh, there were a bunch of interested parties. One of them was A&M Records and a guy named Aaron Jacobus. And then there was uh, a guy named Ron Oberman at Columbia Records that came and saw us one night. I think it was at the Country Club in Reseda where we played. And um, he, he saw us live. And that night, Janie actually had chicken pox. So it was an abbreviated set. We knew the guy was coming in. We wanted to play anyways. So Janie manned up, and we played, I think, a half a set. And that's the set we ended up getting signed on. So what's going through your minds when you get signed? I mean, do you sit there and think, because you're young, as you said, do you think you're going to be rich overnight? Or what? what is the men, the mind frame of someone who, as you said, you're around 22, when most people are getting out of college and looking for a job, you know, maybe making some money, did you guys think you were going to become rich overnight? I, I don't know. I, to be honest with you, at the time, I don't remember thinking about money. All I remember thinking about is we get to do what we love to do and get to go on the road and, and, and play in front of huge crowds. So it wasn't it wasn't about the money. And, 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 and if I can give anybody any unsolicited advice – if you do something and you love to do what you do, the money will come. It's just kind of like happens, um, it, it, you know, because it's passion. And I think it's, there's there's kind of a connection with that. If you always love something you're doing, then it, it, money comes, you know. Unfortunately, some things don't bear a lot of money. Some things can. Music for us, you know, we loved it. So that's what we were doing, and we put everything we had into it at the time. So the money came. Uh, and then the money went just as easily as it came. So, you know, it all de- it all depends on your perspective. But this perspective for when we when we got signed was, all right, hurdle one over with. Now let's let's get a record out. You know. Now the record comes out and it has a few popular songs on it. And who are you touring with? Who do they have you open up for? We couldn't get a deal to save our lives. Our first tour after the record came out was with Paul Stanley's solo band on the on the East Coast. So it was his first solo tour he'd ever done. And here we are with the new record out. So Columbia Records is in every club that we played on the East Coast. You know, The Chance, um, Toad's Place, all these different places we played on the East Coast. You know, and pelting him with all the all the flats from, from our record. And as soon as they would go up, Paul Stanley's guys would turn around and come in and take them down because it was a Paul Stanley show. I get it. We get it. Um, at the time, it pissed us off because we were young and hungry and we didn't know what it was like in the rest of the states. I mean, we were pretty concentrated on the on the West Coast. Um, so just tour, tour, tour. That was Paul Stanley. We played gigs with Skid Row, Eddie Money, a few weeks in, in uh, what do you call them, uh, colleges. And um, we ended the first tour with Motley Crue. So Motley came out with Dr. Feelgood, and I think we did about six months with them uh, on the Dr. Feelgood tour. And uh, put it this way, when we started that tour, they were sober, and when we got off of it, they were not. (laughs) Um, But we had a lot of fun with them, you know. They later went in to slam us in their book, which is kind of, Kind of uh, funny all together. That's what Motley does. They like to they like to spice it up and have controversy. But I had a great time on that tour. I had some great friends in that band um, while we toured, and it's all history. Now, do you remember the first time you heard a Warrant song on the radio? Yes, I do. I don't think you forget that. Um, and it was in. I was in my car, and I had a pretty cool stereo in it because my dad worked for a uh, for a stereo manufacturer at the time, so I had, like, full... Remember Alpine stereos? Oh, yeah. I remember Alpine and Tiak. Tiak was a big yep. stereo. Yeah, and they glued, they were the ones that glowed green, right? Yeah. The Alpine stuff. <laughs> so I had this bitch in stereo in there, um, because we used to always demo them on, in my car, because we could put them in and figure out how to put them in right and all this. But anyways, uh, I turned it on. I turned the, the radio on. I thought it was there was a tape or a CD in it because it started playing Down Boys, and I'm like, oh okay, I got a pot, and I pushed eject, <laughs> and nothing came out, and it was like, holy shit, I'm on the radio, and it was a, uh, it was KNAC, 
And uh, so that's that's the, that's how I remember it happening. Pretty cool. So the album does well, and then you come out with the next album, and just you know that video from you know Cherry Pie just basically right. changed. I mean, I, I try to tell people. I talk to some younger people, and I tell them how influential MTV was. And back then, it was huge. I mean, that video was was that your first? Did you know that was going to be your first video, the Cherry Pie video? From, off that from, record, yeah. yeah okay. I mean, we had done um, off the first record. We had done four videos and a live, a full live show. So that'd be five off the first record, and then Cherry Pie was the first one off the second record. Um, so that was a two-day shoot. A guy named Jeff Stein, who did the um, Tom Petty video with the Alice in Wonderland-ish one where they cut her up like a cake and all that bizarre right. shit. Um, he's the guy who pro- who produced and directed that, that video. It was pretty killer coming from that guy. But it was just meant to be very pop, culture in your face, you know, type of video and uh most people got the tongue-in-cheek about it even the song and some people didn't like rolling stone i think voted it most tasteless video of of 1990 which which we wear like a badge of honor because nobody can fucking stand rolling stone from right. my camp <laughs> so that video hits and of course everybody sees it and like anything with mtv when it's popular they play it and play it how does that affect your following as a band? And also, how does it affect your personal life going out? Um, you know, the, the big change was after Heaven Off the first record hit. Um, because that got up to, like, number two in the charts on the, on the Billboard Hot 100. And that was the big change to where if, if you're around L.A. and you go out and nobody gives a shit who you are, you could be you know, king of the world and, and nobody really cares if you're in Des Moines, Iowa and you're on a tour and you decide you want to go to the mall to go see a movie on a day off or if you want to go over there and get some fresh underwear or whatever you want to do. It made it a little difficult to go around situations like that, but in LA nobody really cares, you know? And I certainly don't care. I mean I, I'm I'm the furthest furthest away from them from what you would call a rock star than anybody is. I just, I don't, I, I play music for a living. I have a great time doing it. I'm blessed to be able to do it. But as far as any of the uh, publicity or any of that shit, I could care less. Now, what does it do with your touring level? Do you start now, you're going to be headlining or you're going to do festivals? I mean, how does it work for you guys? Yeah, we started off with Poison, that, that tour cycle and opening up for the Flesh and Blood tour, which was their new record. And then we had a, a blowing out on the, on the road with them of sorts. And at that point, we went to Europe. And when we came back from Europe, the record was big enough to where we could go out and, and, and give arenas, uh, you know, right on our own, which is what we did. Now, how does that change for a band in the, the, the you know, where you're put up, the tour bus? How does it change when you go from opener to the the headliner do you see certain perks that you didn't see when you were the opener it, it goes from one bus with 15 guys in a in a in a 20-foot bobtail truck to four semis and three buses and and in about 30 30 employees and about i don't know at the time it was probably a minimum if i remember about a hundred and Fifty to one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a week just in operating expenses, um, just to roll around the, the nation and tour. So, reality was okay. Great, we're in this place where we've got, you know, this bitchin' tour and it's our own, and we can have our own stage and our own lights and our own crew, and you know, pick the opening acts and, and get guys we wanted that we liked or, or guys that we, you know, their record was doing good, and you just step up to that next stage. And, and go for it, you know, and and you learn as you go along, uh, just as much as anything else in life, you know. But it was it was a good time. That's the first time, like you're saying, when did it really impact you? When did you really think something was changing? And that's the first time where I felt the change because I'm like, yeah, I could get used to, you know, having just the band bus and you know without the other crew dudes on it and and this and that. And, but that was short lived, you know. What was the pa- Seattle came along? What was what was the party life like though? Because you were metal, you were you know the that whole look. You know, everyone said you know, rock and roll and everything. What was was it? Was there as much partying 
Chad, not just for you guys, but for all the other bands. Was there as much as they say there was? My band liked to drink. And yes, there was every night. I mean, if, if, if you didn't drink, there was a problem. You know, you because you would just be for, forced to pretty much. And I mean, look, you're in your mid to late 20s on a rock and roll tour. What else are you going to do? You got a 500 mile drive overnight and it's time to party. Now, as you're playing, as you're on the road and you're, I'm sure the band is getting tighter and tighter. How is your guitar playing? Is it, is it developing more? Are you still practicing a lot or because you're playing live every night, you already have it down or were you still trying to hone your craft as best as you could? I was playing every night. So you get better. I mean, I just, just from sheer playing so much, you just get better and better and better. And, and, um, up until I let, when I left the band after the third record and the third tour, after the third record, I was starting to get really good because I practiced, I practiced a lot more. So it just took, it was just a matter of time, you know, time in. I mean, some of these guys that are just insane players, like the Paul Gilberts of the world, and that I really like to listen to, and the Satrionis and all these dudes, they just have a better discipline than I do. That's all it boils down to is that they just put the time in, and if you put the time in, you're going to be better. Now, as you said, Seattle, when Seattle came on, and it did take away the glam metal, hair metal, whatever, whatever you want to call it. How, did you guys see that coming? Did you think it would blow up? I mean, did you notice as you know, you were touring, you were headlining big clubs, did you guys see that coming in, or was it all like a swift kick in the ass that you guys really didn't expect how big Seattle would become? I didn't expect it at all because you get you work so hard to get to that point to where you're like okay now we're headlining now let's just let's just repeat the cycle you know that's what you're thinking is let's just do it again let's do it again let's do it again and you don't see anything like that coming and to be honest with you when I grew up listening to bands bands were around the bands that were I would dug were still around you know I didn't have the perspective that they were they weren't as big as I thought they were because in my mind they were they were still huge. So I didn't I didn't see it coming at all. The funny thing is is that we played gigs with some of those bands up in like for instance Alice in Chains I think opened up for us one time when we played the Paramount up in Seattle. You know, and I didn't even I don't think I watched them. I don't remember but you never know. Um so no, I didn't see it coming. It kind of slapped me in the face and most of the other guys, but what it, who it didn't slap in the face was was the record industry, obviously. Now, that scene changes, and then you leave the band. You left the band to, to follow a separate career, I believe. What was it like when you were leaving the band? Did those guys think we're going to stick it out, and did you just say, "Hey, you know, I, I see the direction that business is going, and I don't see us." I mean, I'm sure you don't want to sit there and go from playing a huge place to playing a smaller place. I mean, that's sort of something no one wants to do. What made you leave? To be honest with you, <clears throat> at the time, um, Janie was going through some rough times. He was going through divorce. He was partying a lot. And, and we had lost our deal because he left the band and then came back. He thought he could get a, a solo deal, but that balked, and he never got it. And then uh, he came back, and when he came back, it was just a different band. It was a different time. Um, a lot had changed. And for me, personally, I was going through some personal turmoil. And I left more out of the necessity of just take care of myself than leaving the band. Um, granted, yeah, nobody wants to go back to clubs after you play arenas. That's not, that's not a fun walk. Um, it's not a walk of shame. It's just not a fun walk. I mean... Who wants to go back to clubs when you're when you're playing these huge huge rooms? Um, but that wasn't the reason why I left. The reason why I left is because of kind of self preservation, so to speak. Now and I just wanted to st stay alive. And now, what did you you went into computers or what? I mean, how did you pick? Because you're, yeah. you're a bona fide rock star. I mean, you know that, that that's you know you've you've been on MTV, you've sold albums, you know you've lived a rock and roll life. And you're right. Sometimes you have to make a decision going. Do I, you know, do I want to sit there and keep doing this the rest of my life 
and partying or do I want to sit there, you know, when you're not sure where your future is, do I want to sit there and get a real job, which sounds weird because, you know, you're a musician. But how did you decide what you were going to do? I mean, did you sit there and like open a book and say, okay, well, you know, I might do this or I might do that. How did you decide what you would do? I took like a year and just partied, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I was I was a wreck. I went through a divorce. It was brutal. It was just, it was just, it was the darkest by far time of my my life. Um, I hooked up with the wrong people that didn't have my best interest at heart, and and just it was just a bad time. And then one day, uh, you know, I've got a I've got a twenty seven year old daughter who at the time was was young. And I just kind of had an epiphany that I needed to be there for my daughter and I needed to have my shit together and I needed to and, and participate in her life. And after about, I'd say, you know, a year, year and a half of not doing that the right way, uh, the epiphany was my daughter, that I had to get my shit together for my daughter. And and I just called my family and my dad, who's a retired executive, and I just said, you know me better than anybody. How do I fucking pick up the pieces here and move on? What do I do? And he suggested um, computers. So I, I, I went to school, and he actually went with me every night. I went to a night school. He took the classes with me and hung out with me through the whole thing, and I ended up getting over 50 certifications for desktop uh, applications, and then I went through the MCSE courseware for Microsoft systems engineer. And I, and I tested out and got my, got my Microsoft certification and I went to work. So that's exactly what happened. Now, what was that like? I mean, did you, did you cut your hair? Well, if you've seen me lately, <laughs> I know well, I'm, I'm, I used, I used to have hair too. So I know that okay, I know the yeah. challenge hair today, gone tomorrow. You know, the more hair I lose, the more head I get. Um, it, it just, I, uh, I, I cut it. But still, you're sitting there in class going, fucking my boys are out on the road. Fuck, what am I doing here? You know, and you're just with a bunch of geeks, you know, learning about bits and bites and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And so, sure, man, I was just scratching my head. But at the same time, I trusted my instincts and my dad. And I I knew that something was going on. And this was in, in the middle of 1996 when I was doing this. So... I got to ride that that IT boom that happened in the middle '90s through through uh, the 2000s. You know. Now, were you still keeping in touch with the bandmates, or was it something that you wanted to have a separate life? Because the thought of you know you want to be a a good father, and you're, you're thinking you know if I keep in touch with the bandmates, I might start creeping back to the rainbow or creeping back. You know, what did you how did you handle that? Right. I didn't, I moved, number one, I moved out of Hollywood. I lived in Hollywood for four or five years when Warren, when Warren got successful. And and then I moved back down to Orange County where I grew up for the most part. Um, and I, and I lived down here. So that wasn't around. I just, I just got up every day and I just went, even if I didn't dig it or I wasn't having a good time, I just knew that if I just got up every day and tried to keep a positive attitude, that sooner or later something was going to fall out, you know, as far as keeping in touch with the band. Yeah. I kept in touch with Eric. Um, you know, I went to his wedding. I, I saw Jerry and they'd come through orange County every once in a while. I'd go to the gig and get up and jam with them here or there. And, you know, but I was still partying. It wasn't like I got sober overnight and I'm not sober now. Um, I'm not a drunk, but I, I like to have a beer now and then. And it's, it's something that I can maintain. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I kept in touch with the guys, not, not so much Steve or, uh, or Janie, but Jerry and Eric, mostly Eric. Now, were you still, even though you're working a full-time job and being a dad, were you still picking up guitar? Cause you, it seems that's what you love. Were you still playing or, or and practicing and just gigging by yourself or did you put a, sort of put it on a shelf for a little bit? I, I, I did both. I, I, you know, when I got back to Orange County, Number one, when I left the band, I did some things um, in Texas with a guy, and I got some money from MCA. The guy that signed Warrant moved over to MCA, and I got some money from him to do a demo, and I did a demo, and it's 
there's two really really nice songs on that demo but it didn't bear any fruit because seattle was popping hard so um when i got back to orange county and got my shit together so to speak i started jamming with some some really good friends around orange county but it, it just never really happened i never pushed it hard you know when you're in a band that's going to be successful everybody in that band has the same hunger everybody and that was a difference because the guys i were playing with down here in orange county god bless them and they're still good friends of mine just you know they didn't have that you know um and i'm sure so you it, also you guys were also when you were with warren in the beginning you guys were so tight from playing every night i mean the sets must have been you know, you're used to that, the trust and the guitaring and everything. That must be a feeling that would be hard to play with other musicians, no matter how good you are, because you did so many shows with Warren. It must have been a little bit hard to play with other people. Yeah, maybe that's it. I, I You know, I never really took thought about it that way. Maybe that's the reason why, you know, maybe I, maybe the, maybe the, uh, the line was too set too high from the beginning and, and that's why it never happened. But it, it, a lot of it's just my follow through and what I want to do too. I mean, you can't blame other people for your own failures or your own lack of hard work. And I just didn't didn't put the work into it that that needed to be put into it to have any amount of success on my own. So you're 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 doing the the computer world. You know, you got in the beginning of the boom, which is funny. I have friends who have been doing the IT world since forever now they're like they can never leave their job because they've been around for the job so long there's no way they're going to leave a job making that kind of money because they'll pay a kid out of college half what they're getting but you, you right you've gotten a boom so now when does start talk start coming up that warrant is going to get back together i i just simply you know eric and i would talk to one another every three or four months and i and i just got an email from him saying hey man um do you want to jam no, it was like, hey, man, call me. That's what it was. And I'm like thinking to myself at the time, his dad had passed a, a year or two earlier, and I'm thinking to myself, shit, his, mom's, his mom died. Okay. That's seriously what I thought. That's why he's trying to come out, you know. He wants me to call him because he just wants to talk because his mom died. That's a fucking horrible thought, but that's what I was thinking. And I called him up, and I'm all, hey, man, what's going on? You okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm great, man. You want to jam? And I was kind of thrown back. And at the time, you know, I had I would more than passed through everything I needed to do for myself to get my shit back on track and keep my shit together. And it sounded like a fun time because I did at one point put the guitar down and say, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, uh, I just don't have the, the, the desire to do this because it's no fun. But when he called me and asked me if I wanted to jam, I was all over it. And that's how it started. So it starts, you guys start jamming. Now, was this is before Johnny passed, but had he been, was he part of this? No, he was not. What what How it happened was that he went to the guys in the band and said that he wanted to make more money than anybody else off touring, and he was already making the lion's share off songwriting because he wrote the songs. And the guys are like, look, this is the only way we make money. We're not going to pay you more money to go out on the road. And he's like, okay, well, fuck you, then I'm not going out on the road. So that's when they called me and started to think about putting the old band back together. Um, at the time, the first jam I did was with my good friend Mike Fasano on drums, who had been playing with Warrant. And uh, Jamie St. James from Black and Blue was on vocals. He, was, he just came down to sing because Black and Blue was done. And uh, that was the jam, and that jam, basically everybody went, look, there's a there's a gig booked. Do you guys want to play a gig? And we're like, great, let's do it. And that's how lighthearted it was. Now, what was it like going up on stage after being away, that first gig? Where was that first gig at? It was in uh, Fort Lauderdale at the, at the motorcycle show down there. So we were opening for Night Ranger, and Brad Gillis was a good friend. So here I am, and I still had my IT job. I took time off to go do this gig. Here I am in Fort Lauderdale, partying, having a great time, doing a live show with old friends, and it was like nothing had ever changed. Now, did the people work 
know that you were in warrant? Like, did, like the people you worked with, were they just oblivious to the fact? I when whenever I would get a job, and I had two or three jobs during that period of time when I wasn't in the band. Anywhere I would go, I would be greeted with some picture of myself <laughs> in a compromising situation from from the road. You know, like some guy at my first job was at a, was at a software company. This good friend of mine put a picture of me like with my boxers on and two <laughs> beers in my hand partying, saying, here, we're hiring this guy. <laughs> and uh, he got in trouble for that. But when I look back at it, he's still one of my good friends. I mean, we laugh and, you know, pro bottom line is, is I got the job and I knew what, what I was doing. So I proved I proved all the naysayers wrong when it came to that. But, yeah, they knew. Yeah. It must most, have been cool. most of them were cool. Yeah, I would think it would be cool for a coworker, like you know, because I interview a lot of celebrities, and uh, I was a comic back in the day. And you know, when you when you meet people, when I would get a regular job, and when I was doing comedy, I before I could support myself doing comedy, people were always fascinated by it. But for you, it was like you were Warren, your cherry pie video. You're, everyone knows you. If I work with someone like that, I'd be blown away. I'd be like, "Holy fuck, this is a this is so cool going to work." I'd be like, "Guys, you won't believe who I work with." Yeah, well, you know, I'm just a mellow dude, and you know, yeah, I was in a popular band. Yeah, we were all over the TV. But at the end of the day, I'm no different than you or anybody else. I just, you know, happened to be in that median for a while, and I don't look at it. You know, I've got a day gig now. I, I do 50, 60 shows a year with Warrant, but. I've had a day gig for 13 years that I manage uh, as well, and and that's my gig. You know, I love music. I love the band Warrant. I love what we did. We have a lot of fun. We're all grown ups. It's it's fun on the road now, um, but I can make I can manage it with my gig I have now daily. Now, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, now, after that first gig, though, I was going to ask you, because, you know, you say you do so many shows a year. After that first gig, back together with, you know, in Lauderdale, did you guys decide that you were going to pursue it a little more? Or how did it come where you went from just doing this one gig in Fort Lauderdale to now where you sit there and you're saying you're playing 50 to 60, you know, gigs a year? What was the steps to where it became that? It was just natural. You know, and that's that's what I'm saying. Like at the tail end when I left Warrant and, and it was just in hell at the point, what we call the black ears collectively, um, you know, it was all about let's go gig and let's make money. And and it was just doing it for all the wrong reasons for me. Um and and and, and that's not why I got out, but maybe it's part of a catalyst of why I got out when I got out back then. Um, but when we got back together and we started jamming around, it was that old feeling of, I'm just loving this. It's fun again. Now, and so to me, it was just natural. I'm doing it for all the right reasons, you know? But when did you sit there and start getting more dates? Because, you know, it's like anything. People want to see that music. You know, there was a whole group of people, you know, as I say, my age, you know, that and your age, that we still love that music. And there's a demand for it because, one, a lot of people our age, you know, either if they didn't have kids, they can always go out, or a lot of people our age had kids and their kids are growing up, so now they can go out again. But right. why, why do you think Warrant just got hot again? Because it's a matter of, you know, and that whole genre, the, the, the metal, the hair metal is coming popular again. Why do you, do you think was people were just tired of all the crap that's out now? Or what do you think made this happen? I, I think, you know, the band had taken a beating just because there were some really bad gigs. Um, there were some, some bad decisions made. You know, there were some things that, that, and I'm not calling anybody in my band out saying they made bad decisions, but just, you know, it, it, it once it got beat up by Seattle just sheer the sheer will and and to be relentless and it, it's got to do with anything in life i mean if you want something bad enough you just do it and you're relentless and sooner or later something's going to happen sooner or later when you wake up in the morning you know you might have 50 pounds of shit happen to you in the day but sooner or later something really cool is going to happen if you just stick with it and and that's kind of an unsaid written law in this band that we just keep on going. So I don't know if it if it was designed 
or if people just started coming out more. But even now, I mean, in the last three or four years, we've been selling some shows out and some decent size shows, you know, two, three thousand, four thousand. And we kind of, when it started, we were looking at each other going, wow, what, what happened? Why did we sell out tonight? You know, and, and it's just because people are coming around. I, I couldn't explain it. I don't, I have no idea why. I can tell you that the band sounds better than ever. Um, because after playing songs, same songs for about 30 years, you get good, you get good at it. Um, so it's just, we're having a good time. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's natural and people see us having a good time. They want to have a good time. I have no idea. Now, how has your guitaring changed? Have you changed as a guitarist? Do you sit there and go, do you practice different things? Like maybe trying classical guitars or whatever. I also saw, I believe you play harmonica and banjo. Is that true? No, I, I, I can, I cannot, that was actually, uh, Eric Turner put that on a record because we had Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, I think Jerry can play more banjo than Eric can, so. No, I can fiddle around on a piano a little bit, I can make some noise on drums a little bit, enough to piss my drummer friends off, and, um, because it's horrible. Um, and, and, and then just guitar, so no, really just, um, I do warrant. I don't. I don't veer from that a lot. I don't spend a lot of time sitting there, woodshedding on stuff, unless it's some old song that we're going to bring back into the list. You know, set that I haven't played in a long time. Um, and sometimes I'll go back and listen to some old priest or when that new priest record came out a year or so ago, Firepower. I, I learned some of those riffs just because I'm, I'm a huge priest fan. And uh, but outside of that, no, I, I'm not a guy that sits there. I've got a family. And and I spend a lot of time with my son and my wife when I'm not on the road and and not home working. Now, uh, new music for Warren. When's the last time you guys came out with a new album? 2017. Right. Um, May of 2017, we came out with Larder, Larder, Louder, Harder, Faster, <clears throat> and uh, we've been touring behind that for for you know a year and a half. Uh, and, and there's talk about starting to work work on something new. What is it like? Always interesting. What was it like getting new music? Because as you said, you've been playing some of those songs for thirty odd years. Was it refreshing to sit there and just start playing some new music, and also to see how your fan base would react to it? You know, it's 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 more of a necessity in the beginning because you know your booking agent says we need new music, so we got a reason why to go out and get gigs. And so I, I did, I've done just as many records in Warrant with, with Janie Lane that I've done without. I've done three. So I've done a total of six. First three and the last three. And, and to be honest with you, once you get in the studio, like the first one we did with Jamie St. James, that was a lot of fun. Um, the second one we did when Robert Mason got on board uh, with Keith Olsen producing, who's produced people like you know, Foreigner and Pat Benatar and all these shoes. I think he's got like over a hundred million records sell under his belt that he produced. Uh, that was fun. The last one we did with Jeff Pilson, um, and, and it was like two years ago when we got into his studio. Jeff is just awesome and fun to work with. Um, but inside the band, there was just more bullshit than has ever been, to be honest with you. And, and it has to do with with songwriting and who does what and what ends up where and what everybody wants. And it's kind of a tug of war, so to speak. Um, and every band I'm sure goes through it. And I'm not calling out any of my guys in my band. I love my guys, but it's just part of what we do, you know, and there's going to be egos and I want my song on the record and I want this and I want that. And at the end of the day, if you make it through making a record and you're still together and you can tour, that's really all that matters. And, and that's what we did. Now, um, what is your favorite Warrant song to play? Oof. Uh, it, 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 it goes back and forth. I, I like the heavier stuff, so you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin's fun. Anything off the third record, Dog Eat Dog, is fun to me. I like the harder stuff. I don't necessarily like care for the ballads as much, and that's usually what everybody wants to hear. Um but I, you know, anything heavy, you know, uh, hole in my wall off the third record, um, machine gun, some of the like sure feels good, which is what we open with currently is 
there's a lot. It's kind of got a boogie rock vibe to it, old school Van Halen, you know, center swing type of vibe. So anything like that would be would be something I'd prefer to play live more than more than most. Now, how have you seen the crowds change? I was at a concert the other night. I was at the Light of Day concert. It was Willie Nile and a few other people, and it was an older crowd. And the the people, the women, were just dancing and having fun, you know. And and, and I go into younger concerts, and people. You know, like Andrew WK, they were all going crazy, but some of them, they just, they're mellow. How do you see, have, have your crowds changed or have they, they've, have they aged or what do you see when you're jamming and you look out in the crowd? Um, I'm blind as a bat, so, so <laughs> <laughs> I wear glasses and I wear sunglasses on stage just because I have no hair. So I'm like, I need a, I need a prop up here. So, but I can't see, even with my glasses and, and the lights, I don't see real far, to be honest with you. Um, but, but when I do see people are smiling and having a good time, you know, and it's, it can be young. It's a mix. It's like, it's like parents bring their kids to the gig and the kids are into it. It trips me out because I was never into my parents rock and roll until I, you know, hit in my thirties. And I'm like, wow, this, you know, this stuff's pretty badass. And my dad was in the country. So he was listening to Glenn Campbell and Jerry Reed and all this badass shit that I just never got until I like really listened as a musician and I'm all wow Glenn Campbell's a badass guitar player Jerry Reed's a badass guitar player and and I and I dug it you know so maybe maybe that's what's happening to us a little bit um and then you get your diehards out there that grew up to us and just want to hear those songs because it takes them back to that time and that's why we feel a tremendous responsibility to to do it well you know it's a lot of fun man now, when you're in tour, who's on, who's in charge of the set list? I'm the set list master. And how do you, how do you how does one become a set list master? Um, I, I don't know. By default, I, I, it wasn't <laughs> like you do the set list. I just uh, have some skills on a computer, and I can move data around, and, and I just made it look pretty. Maybe that's it. Um, but there's also a formula of of, of like if we're hired to play 75 minutes, I have to write 75 minutes and you can't write, you know, 90 minutes. So you need to know how to write a set list and, and how long it's going to last and anticipate how long your singer is going to talk and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So I've just taken it on and, and I'm the one that sends the set list out every morning of a gig. I send the set list out with guest list to our productions team which there's three to four guys we have on the road at any time and, and everybody in the band's copied and usually everybody just gives it a thumbs up which is great now where's cherry pie usually in that set list and where's heaven cherry pies towards the end and heaven floats um cherry pie is always a last song period it just is what it is and it's a lot of fun it's hard it's a hard it's a hard song to sing you know at the end of a set when you've been going for an hour, hour and fifteen minutes, and you got to belt that one out, it's really hard to sing. Um, but that's always towards the end. And then heaven floats. Sometimes we play heaven towards the front end of the set. Sometimes we play it towards the back end, like before. I think the last two songs are usually like Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and, and Cherry Pie. Now, um, you know, you said you you can't see that great on stage, but as someone who's been in the business for a long time, and this bothers right. me when I go to concerts now. Does it ever bother you that people sit there and they have a lighter app? When we grew up, you lit the lighter at the end of the concert. That was always did. But now people swing their phones with the apps. Does that bother musicians? I, I could give a shit, man. <laughs> if, if people are having a good time, you know, whatever they're doing, as long as they're not being cruel to somebody else in the, in the crowd... And they're not a drunken fool, which we've all done, and I'm not picking on anybody, but we've seen it. And I, I just want people to have a good time. And 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 there's five guys up there that are doing everything they can do to make sure that people have a good time. And if somebody's shitty with one another, you know, we'll get involved. But it doesn't. It, it rarely happens um, with us because just people are older and they get it and they just want to have fun. So, no, I don't give a fuck if they're swinging a, a, a camera, phone, or what as long as they're just having a good time man who am i who am i to pick on what how they do it you know what i mean yeah cool i want to thank you for taking time to talk to me this is great i'm a, I'm a fan of the band and uh it's something that's great to see you guys are still around 
And it's great to see that your life, you know, you've, you're back into doing what you love, but you also, in that time, became responsible. And that's a lot to say for a lot of people, you know, you always see like the guy who's still trying to do music and he's working at, you know, whatever, but you were, you were someone who took responsibility and it all came back to you because now you're out touring. Do you have a lot of tour dates set up for 2019? It's the most booked year prior to the year. So last year, at the end of the year, we were looking at dates for, for this year, and it was like, wow, we've already got a bunch of dates booked. So we're hoping to do, you know, it would be nice to do 60. We could even pump it up to 70. It, it, you know, this band typically needs to take a break from one another just because we're all older and we've got our families and everybody wants to be home with their family. And some, some of us have younger kids. I Myself, I've got... 27 year old daughter but i've got a six-year-old son and, and i need to be there for him so so he knows you know he's got a dad and i can help him out with life so that's important but getting back on the road's important so the emails have started flying in from guys saying i need to get on the fucking road now i've been home too long and and it's funny um and in the same same you know sentence that's the way we operate you know everybody's ready to go out and rock again and uh, usually we play for the whole year, and then around October time, every there starts to get this burn, and everybody's like, "Okay, are we are we almost done?" Because it's not like a tour that just goes and never, you know, it doesn't have an ending. There's an ending, but it's not like we go out for six weeks and then we're done. You know, we're going out the whole year long. Well, great. Well, man, I want to thank you for taking the time. And uh, you're like me. We both had hair and now it's gone. How do you handle that when you're on stage? Does it feel different when you're playing guitar from used to when you used to have the big head of hair? Do you feel different? Do you feel more aerodynamic? I, I'm super fast on stage and uh, <laughs> that's fucking great. That's the first time I've ever heard that. I love that. I'm going to use that when I see the boys. Go ahead. Because I usually, right before we go on stage, I'm all, if anybody stands still for five seconds, I'm going to kick your ass. That's the last thing I say before we go on, but this time I'm going to tell them I'm running all over them because I'm aerodynamic. There you go. Well, people, you know, I, 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 hey, man, it's been a pleasure. If we're in town near you, I don't know where you are. You East Coast now? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, ten minutes from Philadelphia. We're playing Sayreville. How far is that from you? Sayreville, Jersey. That's about. It's about. I'm in New Jersey. It's about uh, forty-five miles. All right. Well, you need to get in your car and come up and have a beer with us. I will. I will. Put me on the guest list and I'll go anywhere. I got you covered, man. Just hit me. I, the date is, I'll tell you the date right now. It's, uh, come on, I think it's in March. Survey says, I'm bouncing around on my computer right now. Survey says that Sayreville is on, there it is, this 22nd of March. I will put it on my calendar. Give me a holler. You know how to get a hold of me. I'll put you on the guest list. Come drink my beer and Relive your musical past a little bit. And I'll be aerodynamic, and I'll be running around the crowd. I'll get you on stage at, on Cherry Pie, and we can both run around like madmen. How's that? <laughs> All right, man. So, people, check out uh, check out Jelly Allen. Check out Warren. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 700 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Twitter. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water. Take your vegetables, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.